On the back of your order of service each week, we print the six sources of our UU living tradition. We are a big tent. And although there are many advantages of going deeply down a particular path, and certainly that's something you can do and still be a UU, I'm also grateful for the breadth of our six sources. Direct experience, what you know to be true because you've experienced it firsthand for yourself. Lessons from activists, what we learn from people who actively work for peace and environmental, social, and uh, economic justice. Wisdom from all the world's religions, wherever we can find that, with the freedom to let go of the parts that are no longer helpful. Jewish and Christian teachings in particular, because those are the traditions that, from which we are most directly descended, as you use. Reason and science, also a part of our sources. And then the earth-centered traditions, which teach us to embrace the sacred circle of life and to live in harmony with the rhythms of nature. When reflecting on a given topic, part of what I ask myself is which source or which sources would be most helpful for this topic and thinking about how do we live well in our globalized, pluralistic, postmodern world that we find ourselves in here in the early 21st century. Sometimes that means studying a Hindu Veda or a Buddhist Sutra. Other times that means looking at the latest issue of the New York Times or the science journal Nature. Yet other times it means looking to my own personal experience or the experience of those I know. Attempts to hold together and even sometimes integrate such a wide diversity of sources is actually pretty rare. Too often, these sources remain in their own silos, and even when they do dialogue with each other, some of you may have seen various like Christian science dialogues or Buddhist-Muslim dialogues, often those dialogues happen in a, from a pretty defensive crouch, so that kind of core convictions are really not up for debate. But I'm interested in what happens when we attempt to take seriously all of the sources available to us, allowing them to inform and even transform both themselves and us. One of the most interesting scholars I've found along these lines is the historian of religion, Jeffrey Kripal. He's a tenured professor at Rice University in Houston, Texas, and I discovered his work about five years ago and pretty quickly made my way through, because this is how I roll, uh, so through some uh, you know, pretty um, thick books that he's written over the years. Pretty much all his stuff is published with the University of Chicago Press. And I've followed his career with interest since then. Uh, last year, he published a book with the unusual title, Secret Body. And the subtitle is Erotic and Esoteric Currents in the History of Religions. So I thought, erotic and esoteric currents, you say. I'm listening. Uh, a less academic, so uh, esoteric means secret, right? So the opposite of is exoteric. So you know, exoteric is what can, we can all compare publicly. Esoteric is kind of secret and hidden. So another way of saying erotic and esoteric things about religion is basically, I'm going to tell you some sexy secrets about religion, right? That's <laughs> basically what that means. 
And along those lines, I appreciate Kripal's self-admission in his latest book that looking back over the course of his more than two decades as an active religion scholar and all that he's published, he says, I suppose it is just a bit confusing what a man may be about who started out writing about the tantric traditions in colonial Bengal as well as um, homoeroticism in Roman Catholicism and ended up writing about science fiction and UFO encounters in Cold War America and the whole time never stopped writing about sex. I'm telling you, agree or disagree with him, Kripal is always interesting. In many ways, he's a contemporary William James, the early 20th century philosopher and psychologist who taught at Harvard. Among his many books, James wrote The Varieties of Religious Experience, which is one of those rare books that is very much worth revisiting generation after generation. In my early 20s, as I was struggling to free myself from the orthodox dogma of my childhood, James was particularly helpful for to me in, in reading that book and his emphasis on the difference between secondhand religion and firsthand religion. Secondhand religion is the things people say from pulpits like this one that tell you what you're supposed to believe. He says, take that stuff with a grain of salt and pay more attention to first-hand religion, which is what you know to be true because you've experienced the truth of it and the fruit of it in your own life. In Unitarian Universalism, this is our first source, direct experience. But at the same time that James was um, collecting and recording the varieties of religious experience, not only historically, but also in his own day, he also remained interested in the latest scientific research, and, and that's important. The same is true of Jeffrey Kripal today. As a historian of religion, he defines religion, those varieties of religious experiences, this way. He says that religion for him is about humanity's millennia-long encounters and struggles with the anomalous, the powerful, the really, really weird stuff that does not fit in and that doesn't make sense. Importantly, as a historian of religion, he's interested in how all of that anomalous, powerful, weird, nonsensical stuff has been interpreted differently depending on the cultural context in which those uh, experiences arose. You know, it's, it's no coincidence, for example, that you know, people raised in the Hindu tradition tend to interpret strange, weird experiences as confirming Hinduism, and Christians tend to interpret similar experiences as confirming Christianity, and you could carry on. So while collecting and reflecting on all the strange stories from the history of religion, both then and as well as among people alive today, like James before him, Kripal has remained interested as well in the latest scientific research, things like quantum physics, which it turns out has a lot of anomalous, powerful, really, really weird stuff that doesn't always fit in and that doesn't always make sense. Some of you may see where I'm going here. If not, I've got another 15 minutes, so just stick with me. <laughs> Some critics get Kripal wrong when they assume that his interest in people's firsthand experiences, which you really don't have access to, right? You can't put them under a microscope. Uh, that um, They assume that his interest in that means that he's anti-science and wants to return to some kind of like pre-enlightenment age. The truth is that he's trying to actually take reason and religion seriously. If anything, he is actually post-enlightenment, not pre-enlightenment. 
He's not interested in moving backward. He's interested in moving forward in light of all that we know, all of the sources available to us, uh, which actually sounds pretty UU. Here's one example from Kripal that helps make clear that he is by no means promoting, a re- that his interest in religion is by no means uh, an interest in returning to a traditional orthodox religion. He's interested in first-hand religion, not second-hand religion. He writes, as far as I can tell, most of our countless social sufferings and violences, that they most of them arise from the simple fact that we seem to actually believe our social constructions. Those things about our family and our religious and our cultural identities, we really think we are our masks and our language games. We privilege, for example, our religious egos over our common humanity, our societies over our common human species, our cultures over consciousness as such. So the cultures that we just happen to be born into, which are historically contingent, versus the fact that all of we humans are awake and alert, we're conscious. And for him, that's really where it's at. Keep that in mind. I'm going to come back and say more about that later, how important consciousness is. Kripal's work challenges us to loosen our identification with our historically contingent religions, societies, and cultures into which we are uh, born, find ourselves born for whatever confluence of circumstances, and recognize our common humanity. And again, another critical piece is that what he calls the primacy of consciousness over culture. I'll say more about that later. It's also important to be honest, though, about the extent that, yes, we are awake and alert, but there's also limitations to just how alert and what we have access to. The hope of the Enlightenment project, you know, that deeply influenced the the founders of this country, the hope of modernity more widely, was that through reason and science, we might come to understand and explain all of reality. But the reason we now live not in the modern age, but in a postmodern age, if you've heard that word, is that what we discovered through reason and science and through the Enlightenment project is that reality is way bigger and stranger than we humans initially thought. Uh, from that perspective, let's go back to Kripal's definition of religion as humanity's millennia long and encounter and struggle with the anomalous, the powerful, the really, really weird stuff that doesn't always fit in, that doesn't make sense. And let's consider what it means to uh, that claim, that phrase, does something make sense? What are we talking about? We're saying, does it make sense? So we when we use our five senses to collect data about something and then use our reason to reflect on that data from our five senses, does this thing reconcile, right? Does it make sense? Well, the thing is, as incredible as we human beings and our senses are, we also increasingly are aware through our senses of how limited they are, that we know we only see this tiny sliver through our eyes of the electromagnetic spectrum, right? All that might be seen. Uh, Our ears only hear this tiny sliver of the sound spectrum, what might be heard. Uh, Likewise, there's so many smells and sounds and tastes and touches that are beyond our perception. So it turns out the sequence is not merely the more you know, right? It's not merely the more you learn, the more you know, but also a Socratic, the more you learn, the more you're aware of how much you don't know. All that we maybe can't know. 
The astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson said it this way, the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. As best we can tell, we live in this 13.7 billion year old universe and that, you know, it was really disheartening to our species about 500 years ago to learn that we were not the center of the universe, right? We're just the third rock from the sun. That was that whole Copernicus thing, right? We're not the center of the universe. We live in a um, heliocentric solar system. But we've come to learn that actually we're in the Milky Way galaxy, right, that spiral galaxy, and that our solar system is on the periphery of one of those little flares of the Milky Way, and that whole Milky Way galaxy that we're just this tiny dot of is one of more, not of billions, like Carl Sagan used to say, is actually worse than that. We now know it's, more, more, it's only one of more than two trillion galaxies, not solar systems, galaxies in the universe, And what we're learning even more today, because that's mind-blowing enough, at least for me, the truth may be closer to some sort of multiverse with dimensions um, far beyond our perceptions. Um, But as far, you know, long before that, and in William James's words from his book, The Pluralistic Universe, already wrestling with some of these ideas a long time ago, he said that as far as he could tell, we humans may actually be in the universe in somewhat analogous a way to how dogs and cats are in our libraries. Seeing the books, hearing the conversations, but really having no inkling as to the true meaning of it all. They might contest that. Uh, But for me, the takeaway is an invitation to be both more humble and more curious about the ways that reality sometimes seems to be quite strange. Allow me to be clear as well that nothing I am saying here by any means uh, is to imply that we shouldn't take science with utter seriousness. It's merely to say that science is incredibly powerful at doing what science does well, but that it's not our only tool, and it too has limitations. Uh, but the proof that the scientific method work has just an unbelievably massive amount of evidence behind it. Of course, right? I don't preaching to the choir. Uh, but, you know, from the stunning new photos from Mars, if you haven't seen them, check them out, to the troubling yet fascinating headlines of late about CRISPR babies being born, right, that are genomed engineered. Uh, I find them fascinating like a train wreck. Like, I like, can't look away, but I'm very troubled by this. Uh, to smartphones that many of us have in our pockets show that science, what it does well, it really works. So when scientists, an overwhelming number of them, tell us things like climate change is here and it's going to get worse, we should listen to them about that. None of what I'm saying right now says that isn't the case. At the same time, uh, not all experiences are replicable in laboratory conditions. And as a full-time congregational minister for the past 15 years, I'm in a somewhat unusual position to hear people's stories of the anomalous, the weird, the powerful stuff that doesn't fit in, that doesn't make sense, but that nevertheless seems to have happened to people. Uh, like many of you, I've also heard some of these stories from some of my closest friends and family members. You can may or may not have equivalent things in your life or the life of people you know. Uh, those, in neither of those cases are those stories mine to share publicly with you this morning. Uh, but two recent, but some people do share these stories publicly. There's many, many examples I could, I could give you. I'll give you two recent ones from pretty extremely rational public figures who had really strange stuff happen to them. The first is Jill Bolte Taylor. Have any of you seen, read her book or seen the TED Talk? It's called My Stroke of Insight. 
Anybody? A few hands. So just go home and watch that TED talk later. My stroke of insight. Really interesting stuff. Uh, her book is about um, Dr. Bolte Taylor's religious experience in the late '90s when she, this Harvard-trained neuroscientist, found herself having a stroke, and around, and how that played out in her life. Uh, or consider Barn Ar- uh, Barbara Ehrenreich, so, you know, pretty out atheist, uh, but wrote a testimony about her, an adolescent mystical experience that she had. It's a book called Living with a Wild God, a non-believer's search for the truth about everything. And as with many other people, Ehrenreich's a really good example of decades passed before she told a single person about what happened to her. Yet it was really real. Uh, Dr. Kripal had his own strange experience in the late 80s while doing research in Calcutta. He found himself unexpectedly awaking one night to experience himself. Some of you may have seen this in Hindu art, or you can Google image it later. He came to suddenly experience himself as Shiva lying prostrate with the goddess Kali um, dancing on him. So nothing that was ever repeated again in his life. It was this really strange thing that happened to him, yet it was also, as with the case with many people, this kind of one thing happens that is very, it's as influential as anything else in their life, but it's not easily repeatable. It is not repeatable in laboratory conditions for the most part. To give you a story from my own life, in my senior year of college, I was almost through completing the last page of the forms to apply to a particular graduate school that I was pretty interested in going to, that professors were really interested in me going to, and I was actually doing the final form by a typewriter. This is not like completable PDF age. I actually kind of typing that in. And very, again, suddenly, unexpectedly, that's how these things tend to happen, I had this moment of clarity. I did not hear a voice per se. It was not like Santa Claus slash Zeus spoke to me from the mountaintop. But, uh, but I, heard, I, bas- I heard, whatever that means, this is not for you. I had this very, real sense of that, like just very clearly and directly. It's related in the history of tradition, if any of you know Gnosticism. So Gnosticism has a silent G, right? So we have knowledge, we have a silent K, because before that came Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism, right? Silent G. Uh, that just comes from the Greek word to know. So it's about these esoteric ways of knowing that sometimes happen. So to me, it was knowledge in that sense. So I didn't, uh, but I did clearly and distinctly and immediately receive that message, and it was very persuasive to me. It was very clear, this is not for you. And I, I do think if I had not listened to that voice, I might have applied to that graduate school, I might have gone, and my life might have taken a very different trajectory. I don't know what that counterfactual is, because I didn't live that, um, you know, that would be like Earth B or whatever, where that happened. Uh, so... Again, I I don't take that to mean that some superhuman God exists and was speaking to me, but I do take it, along with many other people's experience, to mean that our human consciousness is quite a strange and curious thing sometimes. And that although we are for the most part out of our league in the grand scheme of things, although we are for the most part like James's cats and dogs and our human libraries, hearing the conversation, seeing the books, but having no inkling as to the true deeper meaning of it all, There are sometimes occasional glimpses or breaking through, whatever that means exactly, because I don't really know what I'm talking about, right? Limitations of our knowledge. Um, 
It's at this point that I want to connect back to the earlier quote from Kripal about the primacy of consciousness over culture. He really doesn't want us to get lost in our historically contingent cultures and the way we overlay these things over the immediacy of the experiences. Uh, so as a... Uh, So he does what he wants to call the comparativist table. He really wants to lay all these things out and think about what what they really tell us about human nature, not just about Hinduism or Christianity or any of that. And he sees them essentially as a function of human consciousness. Kripal crystallizes it this way. For him, consciousness as such is the new sacred. There's a lot to unpack about that. Let me say a little more. From a classical enlightenment materialist perspective, that like the material world is the only thing there is, consciousness, our awareness, is completely generated from our brain. Our mind is completely an emergence of our brain, so when our brain goes, we go, lights out, that's it. That's likely true in part. By all means, our brains matter. But I also think Carl Jung was on to something with his idea of the collective unconscious. This isn't to say that Carl Jung's exactly right or the collective unconscious is kind of right, like kind of along the lines of what Megan was saying in the sermon about God. Like um, Forrest Church used to say, you minister, God is not God's name. Whatever we mean by that, you know, it's, it's just we're using our human language to point at something beyond itself. So that um, part of what our brains are doing is perhaps tuning into something more, something larger than ourselves. Um, Let me give you a metaphor. For Jung, our ego, the part of ourselves that we're consciously aware of, is like the tip of the iceberg that's above the ocean, the 10% of the iceberg. But that 10%, that's not what sunk the Titanic, right? What sunk the Titanic was what really matters, the 90% that was below the surface. Uh, so an equally part of ourselves for Jung is our individual consciousness. So our ego is the 10% of the iceberg above the water. Our unconscious, our individual unconscious is the 90% of the iceberg that's below the iceberg. And our collective unconscious is the ocean in which any individual iceberg is floating. Uh, in Jung's words, the sea of mind and being out of which the individual psyche, that is the person, freezes into hard form, so to speak, and comes into existence, at least for a time, before eventually melting back into the ocean. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't add that it was neither Jeffrey Kripal nor any um, spiritual mystic or religion scholar who first opened my mind to how truly strange reality actually seems to be. It was a scientist, the Columbia University professor of theoretical physics, Brian Greene. Did any of you see his 2003 PBS series on Nova, The Elegant Universe? Any Elegant Universe folks out here? It's worth, so there's a book by the same title that's quite good. The video, for my money, was a lot more useful to actually kind of see it. So Elegant Universe, check it out, really interesting. Uh, His book on that won the Royal Society Prize for Science Books and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Nonfiction. What he was talking about regarding things like spooky action at a distance, the way that science is showing us that particles that are entangled on the quantum level can affect each other even when when one's manipulated, even though really far apart, the other's manipulated. Spooky action at a distance. He was talking about things like nonlinear time, the ways in which our perception of time is different than how time really is. All that stuff from a physicist was wilder than the experiences of any religious mystic that I've ever read. 
Kripal says it this way. The physicists go on and on about big bangs, ghost universes, a multiverse, multiple dimensions, entangled telepathic particles, God particles, non-locality, retrocausation, even tiny invisible strings. But we humanity scholars, for the most part, we're allergically avoid, we allergetically avoid all that weird stuff, all that remarkable stuff, all those first-hand religious experiences that strongly suggest that quantum effects scale up to human experiences. All that mystical interconnectedness, all those entangled people who somehow instantly know what's happening to a beloved loved one or a beloved pet, even though a thousand miles away, non-locality, or foresee what is about to happen, retrocausation. Uh, Instead, we go on and on about how we're all locked into our historical context, how religion is only about dubious power or bad politics or evolutionary adaptations. And by all means, it is those things, but mostly that's secondhand religion, and he's interested in firsthand religious experience. So too, are there hucksters, charlatans, snake oil salesmen? Stipulated, of course there are. But are there also people having some of these authentic experiences, and what do we make of them? For Kripal, it's more than anecdotal statistical flukes or perceptual delusions. To come full circle, I deeply value all six sources of our Unitarian Universalist living tradition from our first source of direct experience, what you know to be true because you've experienced it deeply for yourself, to reason and science, what we can collectively affirm and prove and replicate in laboratory conditions, and to our other sources. And I readily confess that what I've been talking about is all quite strange, but so too, in my experience, is this reality in which we find ourselves. To leave the last words to Kripal, what I do know is that any vision short of something so fantastic is simply too small. Any story smaller is not worthy of who and what we really are. And something close to that is what I really think. <laughs>